As you all probably know, today is the fifth anniversary of the Affordable Care Act. Five years ago today, I uh, was in a cab um, heading over to the uh, Department of Interior, which is across the street from the White House, which was sort of the second string signing ceremony for the people who didn't make it to the real signing ceremony, but the president and vice president came over and spoke to us. But in the cab on the way over, I was uh, my cab driver was probably an Eritrean, it's Washington, um, and he was very excited. He said he had been up all night. He was so excited today he could finally get health insurance. So one of the many surprises, I suppose, of the Affordable Care Act, uh, I'm not sure if he can get it yet, but he certainly uh, wouldn't have been able to get it until 2014. Um, but it has made a huge difference in the lives of millions of people, uh, many of whom I know, probably some of you in this room, if you've been covered by your parents' insurance policy um, uh, as, as after you turned 18 or 19 or whenever you would have lost health insurance otherwise. Um, the Affordable Care Act is once again before the Supreme Court. It survived uh, the ACA, survived its last appearance before the court, but just barely and badly maimed. Four of the court's nine justices would have stricken the entire act as unconstitutional. Five of the members of the court upheld the ACA as constitutional, but seven of members of the court rolled back the ACA's mandatory Medicaid expansion for adults under the age of 65, with incomes not exceeding 138% of the poverty level, turning the expansion into a state option. The changes left almost 5 million of the neediest Americans, including probably 300,000 Virginians, uncovered. The current litigation before the court, King versus Burwell, is based on an interpretation of the statute itself rather than on the Constitution. But the result of a ruling for the challengers could really be more devastating than the court's 2012 decision, depriving millions of additional Americans of access to health care. The case turns on the meaning and significance of four words in a subsection of the ACA that defines eligibility for premium tax credits, and on how these words should be read in the context of the larger statute. Two subsections that deal with the computation of tax credits refer to enrollment in qualified health plans through an exchange, quote, established by the state, end quote. The plaintiffs in King v. Burwell claim that these four words and their use in this section means that only state-operated and not federally facilitated exchanges which I will call FFMs, federally facilitated marketplaces is what they're called now, can issue premium tax credits. Therefore, the current Internal Revenue Service rule, which permits uh, FFMs to issue premium tax credits, is invalid, and therefore the marketplaces in 34 states cannot issue premium tax credits. They've asked the Supreme Court to invalidate the rule. The litigation is sponsored by the Competitive Enterprise Institute, which has made no secret of its desire to use this litigation to destroy the ACA. The consequences of a decision for the challengers would indeed be devastating. As only 16 states currently have state-operated exchanges, invalidation would mean that the premium tax credits would be unavailable in two-thirds of the states. 8.8 million Americans selected uh, uh, health plans through the FFM in 2015. 87% of them received premium tax credits, which in most instances are substantial. 
If the challengers succeed, their premiums would increase by 122 to 774 percent, depending on the state, with a national average increase of about 255 percent, making health care coverage effectively unaffordable for most of these Americans. This would only be the beginning of a decision to uh, invalidate the IRS rule, however. The taxes imposed on employers that fail to provide minimum essential coverage or adequate and affordable coverage, and those are both defined terms, for their employees only apply if one or more employees receive premium tax credits. So the employer mandate would cease to apply in states with, without state-operated exchanges. Individuals who cannot afford health insurance are exempt from the individual mandate and and affordability is determined after taking into account available tax credits. So if the premium tax credit ceased to be available in the FFM, far more uh, residents of states that have the FFM could choose to remain uninsured and not be penalized. An adverse Supreme Court decision would not affect the provisions of the ACA that prohibit insurers from considering an individual's health status in offering coverage or setting premiums or from excluding pre-existing conditions. But without premium tax credits and with a weakened individual mandate, it is likely that many more healthy Americans would forego coverage. This would in turn drive up premiums for those who remained in the market who would likely be high-risk individuals who really need coverage and have very expensive care. Recent studies of the impact of a decision denying the FFM the authority to grant tax credits predicts that the number of uninsured adults, non-elderly adults in FFM states would increase by 44% or 26, uh, to 26.6 million. The non-group market, both in and out of the exchange, would shrink by 70% to 4.5 million, while premiums in the non-group market generally would increase 35 to 47%. In other words, this would not just affect people who have premium tax credits. It would affect farmers, ranchers, self-employed people, everybody who purchases health insurance in the individual market. Uh, And in some places, in the territories, where the uh, insurance reforms applied but there were no premium tax credits, the uh, individual insurance market simply collapsed. You couldn't buy it anymore in the Virgin Islands. Healthcare providers in FFM states could see a dramatic increase in their uncompensated uh, care burden to the tune of about $12 billion a year, which could threaten financial viability for hospitals, for example. The damage wrought by a Supreme Court decision for the challengers would spread far beyond the immediate effect on those who currently benefit from premium tax credits. The ACA was built on a broad consensus that it emerged by the time of President Obama's election in 2008 as to the most practical and politically feasible path to coverage expansion. This consensus was based on four essential elements – market reforms to ensure everyone could purchase private insurance regardless of their health status, an individual mandate to encourage healthy as well as unhealthy individuals to seek coverage, and that, as you probably know, was originally a Republican idea, premium tax credits to make coverage affordable for low- and moderate-income Americans, and health insurance exchanges, again now called marketplaces, to facilitate competition among insurers, choice for consumers, and access to tax credits to finance coverage. 
These elements were supplemented by the expansion of Medicaid to make coverage available to the lowest income Americans and the employer mandate to discourage employers who have traditionally provided coverage for most working age Americans from abandoning their employees to public coverage. All of the bills that advanced through the House and Senate in the summer of 2009 uh, and the fall of 2009 included these essential elements. The House and Senate bills differed, however, in where they located the exchanges. The House bill created a national exchange from which the states could opt out. In contrast, all versions of the bills that emerged from the Senate located the exchanges in the states. The bills asked the states to set up state-operated exchanges. All versions, however, also included a federal fallback exchange that would be operated by the federal government in states that elected not to operate their own exchanges. The final ACA was based on the Senate Finance Bill with some modifications that could be adopted through a Budget Reconciliation Act. Thus, the exchange remained in the states, operated either by the states or the federal government. The task of the Supreme Court in ruling on this challenge under the Chevron rule will be to determine whether the interpretation of the statute by the IRS is contrary to the quote, unambiguously expressed intent of Congress. If not, the court should uphold the IRS interpretation of the rule if it is not unreasonable. The argument of the challengers is that the expression exchange established by the state is unambiguous. Mm -hmm. Although the challengers attempted unconvincingly to argue that Congress in fact intended to deny premium tax credits to federal exchange states, their primary argument is that the wording of the key uh, uh, provision is unambiguous and therefore uh, the Supreme Court should rule in their favor. The government and its supporters, on the other hand, argue that the court must, as it is often said, read the text of the entire statute as a harmonious whole and not focus exclusively on the four words. Another provision of the statute, for example, directs the states to establish exchanges but provides that the federal government shall establish such exchange when a state elects not to establish the required exchange. The statute defines exchange to mean an exchange established under the section of the ACA that in turn describes an exchange as a state-established exchange. The provisions of the statute that actually address determination of tax credit eligibility provide that HHS must create a system in which the exchanges in each state shall determine tax credit eligibility. Moreover, the off-stated statutory purpose of the statute of making coverage available in all states necessarily assumes that tax credits will be available regardless of whether the state elects to operate its own exchange or elects to have the federal government operate the exchange. In fact, a co-author and myself have published an article that identifies over 50 provisions of the ACA that make no sense or little sense if you read the statute the way that the plaintiffs argue that it should be read. As just one example, Section 2201 includes this phrase established by the state four times. But if you read that statute, and CEI for some reason didn't raise this issue, um, I think maybe they didn't get past Title I and got bored with the statute. But in any event, if you read that provision of, of Title II literally, 
what it would mean would be that no state that does not have a state-operated exchange can have a Medicaid program. No state could have a CHIP program um, because uh, that provision requires the states to coordinate their Medicaid and CHIP programs with an exchange established by the state. Four lawsuits have been filed challenging the IRS rule, two by the Competitive Enterprise Institute and two by the Attorneys General of Oklahoma and Indiana. The IRS rule has been upheld actually as unambiguously authorizing the uh, 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 federally facilitated marketplaces to issue premium tax credits by two of the district courts, and uh, the other district court ruled the other way. Um, The Fourth Circuit upheld the decision of Judge Spencer in Richmond uh, upholding the IRS rule, um, and that's the decision that's now on certiorari before the Supreme Court. A panel of the D.C. Circuit Federal Appellate Court ruled two to one uh, for invalidating the rule. That uh, decision was vacated by the uh, full D.C. Circuit, but um, that action in that case and in the two other cases has been held pending the decision of the Supreme Court. The plaintiffs filed their original brief in December, supported by 21 amicus briefs, mainly from right-wing advocacy groups. Uh, Seven states filed briefs in support, but notably absent were big Republican states like Texas, Florida, Ohio, and Wisconsin. This is very different from the 2012 litigation when 26 states weighed in against the government. Uh, The federal government filed its responsive brief in late January, supported by over 30 amicus briefs. Briefs were filed by a variety of patient and consumer groups, leading historians, leading economists, um, leading legal scholars, and by 22 states and the District of Columbia led by Virginia. Uh, Briefs were also filed supporting the IRS rule by prominent business groups, the American Hospital Association, Federation of American Hospitals, Hospital Corporation of America, AHIP, the Health Insurance Group, and the Catholic Hospital Association and then also a number of medical groups. The oral argument took place earlier this month. Not surprisingly, the four Democratic appointees uh, aggressively challenged the plaintiff's case. They contended that the plaintiff's reading of the statute takes provisions out of context and, again, does not read the statute as a harmonious whole. Justice Scalia and Alito, on the other hand, actively supported the challengers and pushed the Solicitor General on his reading of the statute. Uh, They supported the plaintiff's argument that the language is clear, and if it is not, it is the job of Congress and not of the courts to fix it. Justice Alito also suggested that perhaps the court could delay its mandate to give Congress time to do this, although it's hard to see how the Supreme Court could authorize a tax credit that it had already held the Internal Revenue Service could not uh, uh, issue. Um, and I, I think there's a strong argument that that would be unconstitutional. Um, the Chief Justice was uncharacteristically quiet, managing the proceedings but not taking an active role. His only noteworthy question concerned the, uh, whether a future administration could change the rule, uh, suggesting that he might be considering Chevron deference as one way of resolving the case, once again saving the ACA. Justice Kennedy surprised the parties by focusing on the fact that the statute as interpreted by the plaintiffs might unconstitutionally coerce the states under the court's earlier ACA decision 
and that the states seem not to have been given adequate notice of the consequences that might arise if they failed to establish exchanges. Nobody really noticed this provision until a year after the statute was adopted. Uh, so the argument that Congress was telling the states you have to do this or you're going to lose all your tax credits and your Medicaid money and your CHIP money is a little bit hard to swallow. It's very hard to swallow. Um, Kennedy suggested that the doctrine of constitutional avoidance, that is, interpreting the statute to avoid unconstitutionality, might be appropriate. The court could rule either way in this case. If it considers the text of the statute of the whole, as the, as, uh, the government urges, it should uphold the IRS rule. If, on the other hand, it focuses only on the four words, um, the court could conclude that the IRS rule is invalid. If it finds the statute ambiguous or applies the doctrine of, uh, and applies the Chevron rule or applies the rule of unconstitutional avoidance, it should uphold the IRS rule as a permissible interpretation of the statute. If it looks beyond the text to the purpose, structure, and legislative history of the ACA, I think it should also uphold the rule. If the court holds the rule invalid, the court's mandate could issue within weeks ending the issue in premium tax credits in FFMs under the current rule. Premium tax credits are issued on a monthly basis, and tax credits issued earlier in 2015 should not be affected by this decision. It would not have retroactive effect. On the other hand, if the IRS rule is invalidated, the IRS will not be able to issue further tax credits in FFM states, and so they would come to an end uh, in the middle of this summer. Individuals enrolled in qualified health plans would have to pay their full premium or face termination. Insurers could probably terminate on 30 days' notice. Cost-sharing reduction payments are dependent on premium tax credits and would also end. Other consequences of the ruling for challengers uh, mentioned earlier, including a dramatic increase in the uninsured population, significantly increased premiums in the individual market, and increased uncompensated care burdens for hospitals and other health care providers would follow in due course. Of course, the rulings will not directly affect premium tax credits in states with state-operated exchanges. One course of action, therefore, is for current FFM states to establish their own exchanges. The ACA sets out in some detail the responsibilities of exchanges, but says very little about what a state must do to establish an exchange. The current HHS rules provide only a bit more detail. In fact, most of the detail here is found in guidance, in a blueprint that's put out by HHS each year, um, and that could easily be amended by HHS. Presumably, CMS could issue emergency regulations specifying in greater detail how a state could establish an exchange and helping states to expedite that process. Any action taken by HHS, of course, would uh, risk another lawsuit by the ever-vigorous uh, uh, Competitive Enterprise Institute. FFM states seeking to establish exchanges, however, will say, face very serious practical and political problems. Under current rules, states must give six and a half months' notice to HHS before they switch from a federal to a state-operated exchange. HHS could presumably reduce this time frame, but, I mean, it took the states that currently have state-operated exchanges four years to get them up, and a number of them didn't even succeed in that time. Uh, and so I think the idea that somehow the states can snap their fingers and exchanges will magically appear is, is very misguided. 
A greater problem may be that many of the current FFM states are steadfastly opposed to any form of collaboration with Obamacare, including establishing state exchanges. Most states with FFMs are dominated by Republican governors and state legislatures, uh, and many of those governors are running for president, um, so they would have a very difficult time politically acceding to the establishment of an ACA exchange. Moreover, a number, most of them, will not be in legislative session. Only a few will be in legislative session this summer uh, when a Supreme Court decision comes down, complicating any possibilities of moving quickly. In theory, the easiest solution to this problem would be for Congress to simply pass a technical amendment, as Congresses have done many times in the past for complex statutes, saying we always meant that FFMs could grant premium tax credits. Um, the problem, of course, is that Congress is no, in no mood to do that at this point. Um, some are already suggesting that a decision against the administration will put Congress in the driver's seat, allowing it to repeal the ACA and replace it with a health reform of its own design. Some of the changes that are being proposed could do far more damage to the goals of the ACA, and so I think this is not uh, a result that's going to be acceptable to the President. The history of the ACA over the last five years, and even beyond that, uh, has been one of repeated escapes from near-death experiences, from the series of votes in November and December of, uh, of, of 2009, where the legislation passed by the absolute bare majority that was necessary, uh, from the election of Scott Brown and the loss of the 60-vote Democratic majority in the Senate that seems to have doomed the bill in January 2010, to the Supreme Court challenge in 2012, which again it barely survived, to the defeat of Mitt Romney, who had pledged that he would repeal it in the 2012 presidential election, to the meltdown of the exchanges in 2013. Perhaps the ACA will survive yet another trip to the Supreme Court. Uh, we will know by midsummer. Mimi? <laughs> So I'm going to point out from the beginning that I drew the short straw. Um, neither Tim or I are constitutional scholars, um, and yet if you're going to actually examine what happened in oral argument, you need to dig down into the weeds a little bit. Um, I'll also quibble just even with the title of what we're doing here today. Um, we, it's called uh, the King v. Burwell Wrap-Up, right? And, of course, the wrap-up comes after the decision, so we'll get that'll be wrap-up two. Um, big caveat before I even start. It's always premature to imagine you know what the issues are based on oral argument. Um, and this oral argument is actually pretty special, as I'll talk about, because much of what was discussed during the oral argument was not briefed by the parties. It was actually briefed by Amiki to the extent it was briefed at all. And so that's going to um, add an extra layer of uh, figuring out exactly where the court is going. So what I'm going to talk about um, is going to overlay on what Tim talked about. I'm going to talk more about what happened in, uh, on March 4th, um, how it plays out, for those of us who are lawyers or law students and how that's going to imagine what that does to law. Um, 
how it plays with textualism, federalism, and Chevron in 10 minutes, um, and my bets on the outcome. And so we'll, we'll take it step by step here. First piece, one of the dangers of Obamacare is it is so politically fraught and has such symbolic power that it is much more likely that law coming out of Obamacare is going to confuse or make bad law than the other way around. And I see every indication that we're heading perhaps in the same way. Uh, the court is sensitive to this, at least parts of the court is sensitive to this, and likely, therefore, what you're going to see in any result coming out is that it's going to try to be as narrow as possible. That likely means that this is going to have huge political significance and fairly minor legal significance. On the other hand, the best laid plans. So it is possible that there's no way to do it narrowly and that that therefore does have implications going forward for the law in these areas. Another piece is that this is a statute that today, as we said, is the fifth anniversary and yet the American public still doesn't understand it which means that any result is unlikely to resolve any of the political questions. If uh, justices go and they uphold the ACA, you will hear stories of judicial activism. If the justices actually do not and find that this is unambiguous in the sense that the text says that federal exchanges are not included in the tax subsidies, you will hear stories of judicial activism. And this is a big problem because it's going to make a political resolution very difficult. So first up, my impressions of the oral argument. I was actually pleasantly surprised this time, on one, uh, at least on one ground. Um, when I listened to the oral argument, and if you remember, it was excruciating, and, and FIB, the oral arguments went on and on over three days. Um, and what struck me a lot during that period was that the justices really didn't understand health care at all. So I think one positive thing that we have here is the justices have come a long way since the NFIB oral argument. What was remarkable in oral argument uh, two weeks ago was how much the justices actually left unsaid because of what was being understood in the background. Uh, part of this is it's a narrow topic. We're actually looking at one provision and how it plays out with the rest of the statute. Uh, part of it is that they've had two years, as Justice Kagan said, this is a never-ending saga, so they have had two years to think about things. Um, also interesting, they were carefully play, paying attention, and, and theoretically justices don't do this, but they were carefully paying attention to the blogosphere and to um, uh, certain arguments that have been made in amici well ahead of uh, actually making the decision and writing things, which often doesn't happen. This came clear in the standing issue, uh, which I'll talk about briefly. Um, it also comes in perhaps in the more fundamental piece, which is the federalism question. Um, neither of those pieces were fully briefed, if, do, if at all, by the parties. 
Um, the standing issue was not briefed at all by anyone. Um, and the federalism piece uh, was uh, briefed, oddly enough, by law professors. So I will stay straight off right now. This is going to perhaps, depending on how things come out, give you a false impression of the power of law professors. Normally, no one pays any attention to us. Um, it is possible here that what some law professors have crafted will play a fundamental role if Kennedy goes the way the tea leaves say he might be heading. So first of all, standing. Um, many of you probably followed the article that first came out in Mother Jones and then was picked up by the Wall Street Journal questioning whether any of the plaintiffs in this case actually have standing. Um, and Justice Ginsburg brought it up very quickly in the very beginning of the argument. I think the standing piece is not likely at least to play a direct role. Um, the plaintiffs uh, counsel represented as close as one can represent such a thing that at least two of the plaintiffs, Levy and Hearst, do have standing. And uh, Secretary General Verrilli was loath to actually question that representation. And what was also clear was the other justices um, did not want to go there, uh, although Ginsburg clearly did. Uh, I do think that this could play, I don't know how many of you remember Professor Dudley, uh, but this could play a role in what Professor Dudley in some of his classes used to call the importance of the major irrelevant fact. And that is this may actually not turn in any substantive sense uh, the way the justices go, but the mere fact that standing seems a little bit unsavory here may have a, an important way on the psychology of the justices, as, or at least two of the justices, as they are thinking about this case. But who knows? So let's get into some of the weeds of the substance here. Uh, first of all, there are no direct, as Tim pointed out, no direct constitutional challenges here. What we're really dealing with here is a case of statutory interpretation and beyond statutory interpretation, whether Chevron applies to give an agency the power to interpret the statute if it's ambiguous. Um, I will note, in fact, that if you were only reading the oral argument, uh, you would actually probably believe that this wasn't a Chevron case. Chevron almost was never discussed. It comes up at the very end, as Tim pointed out, with Robert's sole substantive question. Um, but it is actually what the, the question presented before the court here is actually the Chevron question. And the Fourth Circuit decision, and that's where we'll end today as we look at some of that piece. So when we look at statutory interpretation, um, we need to understand that statutory interpretation does involve constitutional principles. Uh, at heart and statutory interpretation are, stat are separation of powers issues. Um, what the power is of the judiciary to take over legislation when it is interpreting legislative uh, pronouncements in a statute. Um, in this case, it also, late to the party, as I've mentioned already, is the federalism question. And that's the question of 
how much power can the federal government have to coerce the states to act in the way the federal government chooses. So all justices, all judges, I think, at least on their very, very top level, the ideology is consistent. All of them say when they are interpreting a statute that they are the agent of the legislature. The problem is, is that's not where we stop. We actually, when we're interpreting uh, what the legislature means, you will find vastly different interpretations and methods of how that's done. So let's start with what this case probably raises, which is one of the most fundamental um, statutory interpretation uh, doctrines of our age, so to speak, certainly of the last 20 years, um, and that is textualism. And what does textualism mean? And in fact, interestingly enough, as textualism has gained a broader and broader appeal, the meaning of textualism has actually become murkier and murkier. So first, basic principle of textualism, everyone probably agrees with this, at least to some degree, text first. We read what the text is first. The rub comes, and that the rub comes on what we go from there. And that is, so for example, strict textualism might be viewed as text only. Of course, even when we look at text only, we still have to think about, is that the text of a provision or is that the text of the whole statute? Broader textualism might actually go, we start with text, but after that we'll consider legislative history. Um, we'll consider what the effect is on the statute of the whole. All of these are very different notions of textualism, and it would be a mistake, I think, to look at the Supreme Court and say, these four justices think this way, or these five justices think the other way. And in fact, if we take this Justice Scalia, who's probably written more about textualism than any other justice, is, has a textualism that is quite different than Justice Thomas's textualism, even though in the press you'll frequently hear that they are uh, considered one and the same. Um, again, different than Justice Alito's textualism. Um, Justice Alito is far more likely at times to go to legislative history. On the other hand, possibly more than Scalia to be, in many contexts, look at the text alone. And I think you'll see this in the oral argument if you actually read it. Justice Roberts and Kennedy aren't really textualists at all, except to the extent that you might argue that Justice Kagan is also a textualist. And in fact, Justice Kagan, in a fairly recent case, Michigan v. Bay Mills Indian Community, uh, raised an argument that is, sounds very textualist on its face. So again, we can't actually say they'll go this way because this is what their doctrine says. One important piece, we pay a lot of attention. We have lots of faculty workshops. There's a lot of um, literature written on textualism. Law students learn it. Um, the press tries to understand it. 
The one place that I find very little interest in any of this doctrine is the legislature itself. Um, and if we're actually thinking about what it means to interpret a statute, that's an important factor. And another important question is, whose job is it to pay attention, us to them or them to us? And that's something uh, we need to broaden the debate on. There are essentially three options we have here with this case. One is the statute, the clause 1311, clear on its face. It excludes subsidies for the federal exchanges. Two, clear on its face. It includes subsidies for the federal exchanges. Three, ambiguous and therefore uh, subject to agency interpretation and pulls in the Chevron piece. Now, if we look at what the petitioner's textualist argument, and this is the argument that actually won in Halbig in the D.C. Circuit, Congress meant what it said. Established by the state means exactly that. And, in fact, the petitioners argued that in certain places in the statute, exchanges are referred to in a more generic fashion, and in other places they are uh, referred to specifically as federal or state exchanges. And what they also argue is, and this is an important jump, actually, is that it doesn't actually matter whether Congress meant that or not. That's what Congress said that's what it means, and the only place it can be fixed is in Congress. And that's a crucial piece to think of in terms of statutory interpretation. Who does the fixing? Then there is the argument that this should be looked at within the context of the whole statute. And in fact, you'll hear references, if you actually read the oral argument, to a recent decision by Justice Scalia, Utility Air Regulatory Group, uh, the EPA, where Justice Scalia was construing part of the Clean Air Act and where Justice Scalia pointedly says, you can't just look at the simple language, you actually have to look at the whole uh, context of the statute. Now, where Scalia takes this in the oral argument, though, is a jump. He says this isn't actually like utility air. What he actually says is that case involved text that was ambiguous. In this case, the text is not ambiguous. It's clear. And he actually asks Solicitor General Verrilli, is there any situation you can think of where the interpretation, um, the statute is so clear and yet we still went into the whole statute. And uh, really quite quickly came up with Brown and Williamson. Now Brown and Williamson went over the press, but I'm an FDA lawyer and I pay a lot of attention to Brown and Williamson, so let me tell you what it's about basically so you can understand. Uh, Brown and Williamson is the case uh, where uh, tobacco was not considered to be a drug delivery device. And if you remember, in the 1990s, uh, Commissioner Kessler wanted to regulate tobacco. And he believed through the definition of a device and drug, which is absolutely clear, affects the structure uh, or function of the body, that that gave him all the authority he needed. And 
Justice O'Connor and the majority said no, even though that does give you perhaps the straight plain language of that clause may say that FDA could have authority to regulate tobacco. FDA, if you look at the whole statute, does not have that authority because FDA does not have the authority to regulate products that cannot be made safe. And you must go beyond the statute. This is also a place where I think it's going to play a role, as I'll see, show you in a minute, with the Chevron piece. Further, Secretary General focuses on the difference between who versus what. Established by the state could be interpreted as petitioners do. By this is who established it. Verrilli says instead, no, let's look at this as a what. We're actually talking about the what is going on. How is this functioning as an exchange? In that context, they should all be brought together. Furthermore, and Tim actually uh, did this far better than I can, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it, the argument is that it leads to a completely absurd result if we actually interpret this narrow uh, construction and uh, the whole ACA falls apart, quickly moves into a death spiral. And I should uh, point out that everyone agrees with that, that it actually goes into a death spiral. And you will see in the blogosphere many people saying, well, we should now have the solution up front before the justices rule because the justices will be worried about this potential death spiral and that could push the result. Now, the federalism piece. This, as Tim pointed out, did not come out for a year and a half. And the idea, and uh, perhaps you've seen on YouTube um, the Jonathan Gruber video where this is what petitioners hang on to. The idea is that um, all along the intent was to push the states to form their own exchanges. Now, that's an economist speaking. Economists, in my experience, are rarely trained in law. Um, and so you can't just say that he's the architect of the law. You actually have to move into how the architect was affecting people who were the legal architects of the law. And that is a big open question. Um, in any event, what is clear is that no one uh, was paying any attention to this when the... Uh, exchanges were being formed. Most states took their million dollars to form pilots on how to form exchanges, but the vast majority did not go ahead and form them. So clearly if the states were being incentivized to uh, form their own exchanges, they didn't know about it. Um, and you actually will not hear any um, discussion of that. In oral argument, the idea is that the IRS did not do its job and inform them, and that's what it should have done. And so even though it's clear, the IRS, it wasn't clear to the IRS where the IRS was hiding it. As Abby Gluck, a professor at Yale University, has said, this may well be the biggest bait and switch on the states um, in history if that interpretation holds. Um, and it also plays into statutory interpretation in the context of there is a maxim that we do not interpret statutes in a way 
that makes it so they're unconstitutional and that this statute would be unconstitutional in the same way the Medicaid expansion was unconstitutional as a, an illegal coercion on the states to do the federal government's bidding. We'll see how that plays out. It certainly had some legs in oral argument. Last piece is the Chevron piece which is the question presented and how that plays out. And it may play a crucial role um, with Roberts, as uh, we saw in his sole question. My own view is with the Chevron question, we still come into the situation, uh, again, of Brown and Williamson, actually, which was also a Chevron case. Um, and the question we have here is, from Roberts' perspective, can the administration, so let's imagine in 2016, we have a new administration starting in 2017. Can the IRS uh, at that time turn around and say, no, this is actually, um, we're going to read it, doesn't apply to the federal exchanges and change its mind. If you look at Brown and Williamson and why it may help the uh, defendants in this case, is what you actually get is an agency consistently interpreting the statute in one way and then turning around and saying, no, we suddenly are reading it another way. And that has not been, was not accepted by the majority in that case. And it may give us another layer of how to understand administrative agency interpretation of uh, statutes. In other words, Chevron doesn't permit you to go back and forth, flip back and forth. You still, as Secretary, uh, Solicitor General really said, you still must abide by the statute. So some of Chevron 1, the question of whether it's unambiguous or not, is imported into Chevron 2, step 2, in the context that whether it's ambiguous or not, does affect whether the agency interpretation uh, is arbitrary and capricious. And we'll see whether that plays out in the way this uh, decision comes out. No one knows. So that leads me uh, finally to what do I think is going to happen. I should point out that um, I was right on the numbers uh, in NFIB. I was completely wrong on substance. I thought the Medicaid expansion case was the stupidest part of the uh, uh, case and that there was no way the court was going to rule against that. I was dead wrong. I didn't see the spending clause solution coming, um, and I had thought the case would be decided quite squarely on the Commerce Clause. So with that big caveat right there, I'm thinking 6354 upholding the ACA. Um, I don't know that I'm right on that. That's just my hunch right now. Um, and we'll see how it develops. I also think if I'm wrong, what we will find um, is that the administration will do exactly what it says it's going to do, and that is nothing. Um, in many ways, it will swing completely out of a legal question into a major political question. 
and with all of the parties playing chicken with each other. Um, I hope that doesn't happen because it's not going to be fun to watch, especially for those of us who have spent much of our life working on it. Um, but time will tell. I will say it is a very different situation when people actually have tax subsidies and health insurance and lose them. And that will suddenly put us in a position where there is a vocal group, not the most typical vocal group, but a vocal group uh, actually saying how this will affect them, which could actually make people start understanding the ACA generally, which will be the only positive effect if that happens. And on that note, we will wait sometime in June, perhaps, maybe sooner, um, and find out what the true wrap-up will look like. Thank you.